0: Welcome to the Semper Reformator Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So Ephesians chapter 4 please and reading from verse 1, just three verses to read this evening. Ephesians 4 and verse 1, and we hear God's inspired word. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Amen. We've been looking at Ephesians over this past wee while, and we've been looking at Ephesians 1 to 3, where Paul has dealt very, Exhaustively with the theological implications of Christian doctrine, with especially the doctrine of salvation, of God's election, adoption, redemption, all the great themes of the Christian gospel. And he has praised God for what he has done. He has defended his own apostleship and he has shown how he has been given this teaching to bring to the Gentiles and he has prayed for the church at Ephesus and he has concluded chapters 1 to 3 with that amazing doxology that we looked at in our last study. So in a sense Ephesians 4 and 1 begins part 2 of the letter to Ephesians. And we begin to see what is the response of the individual believer to what God has done in Christ for me. So in other words, when we appreciate what God has done for us in saving us from our sins, how ought we to live? It's the the challenge of chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. God has called us to a vocation. Of course, the overarching theme of the entire book is about God bringing his people together as one, about the unity of the body of Christ on earth and later on in glory. But we have this vocation, this calling, and since we are called, surely we should live in such a manner as reflects our calling. We're going to look at that for a few minutes this morning. It's deeply personal. Paul is a prisoner. He's the prisoner of the Lord for the Gentiles. In Ephesians 3 and 13, he has said to them, wherefore, I desire that ye faint not, at my tribulations for you which is your glory he's urging the readers of his letter to live in a manner which reflects what god has done for them about my testimony and yours and especially in these first three verses about the christian's disposition about his um, distinctive lifestyle It's not all superficial, it's not all for show. Christianity is a religion of the heart. It is within us, it's in our minds, and our hearts, and our motives. It's who we are, it's our disposition. Let me try and explain that to you. A few weeks ago I went to take a funeral service in a funeral parlor and I walked through the door and as I crossed the office, Um, I encountered one of the managers of the company and he greeted me with this. He said, Good morning, Bob. On a scale of 1 to 10, what's the level of crankiness today? Me? Cranky? It's not a very good testimony, is it? that how I appear to other people? Because that doesn't really reflect what Christ has done for me. So let's see a little bit about our temperament as believers, about our Christian disposition. And I hope that I will learn something and amend my level of crankiness from 10 down to at least 9. Let's look at the verses together. Look at verse 2 first of all. The first Christian disposition that we see here is humility. Paul says with all lowliness. I think that means humility, doesn't it? The Jews were exhorted to practice a humble lifestyle. Remember the famous words of Micah and Micah 6 and verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy? And to walk humbly with thy God. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy places with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Many, many references to humility, especially in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. But in Greek society, where the Ephesians lived, the people to whom Paul was writing, humility wasn't something to be valued. Humility wasn't a thing in Greek society. These Ephesian believers were people who had grown up among the Greeks, people who despised humility, who had never thought that humility was something to be desired or something to be cultivated in in one's life. For a, for a Greek, average Greek, the word humble means someone who's low born, someone who's slavish, someone perhaps who's disreputable. It was reserved for people of ill repute, or people with a kind of a cringing disposition. Nobody wanted to be humble. I don't think our society today has changed much from those days. That pagan society very much reflects our modern pagan society. What is valued here is the aggressive go-getter, isn't it? What's valued is the achiever. What's valued is the people who are proud. We see them marching in our streets. Pride is what's valued. For the believers in Christ... Humility is the very first description of the Christian character. As our response to what Christ has done for us. We must be humble. I think that's because as Christians, we must know who we are and we must know what we are. To be a Christian, pride must be excluded because we have come to Christ as wretched sinners, haven't we? We cannot come to him with pride. We cannot come to Christ claiming any merit of our own. We must come with complete humility. Jesus says, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Romans 12 and 3. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. When you know who you are and what you are, when you know that you are not nothing other than a wretched sinner, then you cannot have any pride. It brings us down and humbles us. And when we know who Christ is, when we realize that Jesus is God's only begotten Son, that He is the Messiah that he is the only sinless one, that he is the one in whom God the Father was well pleased, the one who hung on the cross to give his own life for sinners. When we grasp the fact that God's only begotten Son humbled himself for us and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Doesn't that make you humble? When we recognize our own frailty, when we realize that without Christ we are nothing, this attitude of humility should percolate out into how we practice our lives, how we live as believers in contrast to the modern society. The church should be a different place to the social club, to the bowling club, to whatever other societies are out in the world. Romans 12 and verse 10, Paul tells us, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honour preferring one another. Let's look at the next word that Paul uses here. He talks about meekness. It's a, it's a hard word to understand, isn't it? It's often misinterpreted. Another translation, I suppose, would be gentleness. For the Greek word, preontes, has no exact English equivalent. We read in Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, Now, the man Moses was very meek, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Now, that gives us an idea about meekness, of what it is. Because Moses, a very meek man, was one of the bravest, greatest heroes in the redemptive history of God. This meek man stood in his meekness before Pharaoh and boldly declared the judgment of God upon the king, upon a man who could have had him snuffed out in an instant. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. The meek man may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declares him to be. But paradoxically, he knows that at the same time, in the sight of God, he is of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That's meekness. Meekness is realizing that without Christ, I can do nothing. Psalmist wrote in Psalm 37 and verse 11, The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Jesus repeated that phrase in the Sermon on the Mount. One commentator tells us that the best way to think of meekness is self control. I have to say, I find self control very difficult sometimes, don't you? If you're honest perfect self-control is beyond us we need to pray ask God the Holy Spirit to take up the reins of our life so that he will control us so that we will be depending in him and drawing our strength from him so like like Moses realizing that our strength comes from the Lord we will not walk in our own strength but be bold in the strength of the Lord Humility, meekness, long suffering, is the next word. Again, that's often understood. Long suffering can simply be taken as a kind of um, tolerance of events around us, and yet that's not what's meant here. What's meant here? The Greek word is makrothumia. It's not suffering in silence. It's not saying nothing as sin and death wreak havoc in the world. Wasn't there a famous incident in the UK parliament in Westminster some years ago when the deputy prime minister of the day, John Prescott, stood up in parliament and claimed that surely if Christianity is about anything, it's about tolerance. Well, is it? Well, we're not to be tolerant of sin. We're not to be tolerant of injustice. We're not to be tolerant of cruelty. We're not to be tolerant of perversion being paraded on our streets, are we? We're not to be tolerant of abortion. We're not to be tolerant about the sexualization of our children. We're not to be tolerant of the satanic practices of the predator classes. We're not to be tolerant of those things. I was telling the folks down Ballymacashian this morning. I wonder, did you see through the week there, there was some social media interest in a doctor from the Ulster Hospital who last week or within the last couple of weeks has performed her very first second trimester abortion here in Northern Ireland, right there in the Ulster Hospital. They have set up a room, a suite especially for to murder babies who are over three months old. And the way that they do that is horrendous. That's not giving you a pill. That's a surgical procedure that literally tears the baby limb from limb by D&C. And uh, this doctor, this particular doctor, a girl called Laura, who had been performing this operation for the first time, uh, apparently had written herself, you can look for it yourself, it's on It's on Twitter, or Axe as it's now called. She had put that she was proud. She was proud to have done the first, second trimester abortion in Northern Ireland. Isn't that appalling? Not just that she'd done it, but she was proud she'd done it. We're not to suffer that. We're not to tolerate that. To be long-suffering is the very opposite of that. To be long-suffering for the Christian is to be resilient. It is to keep going when all seems against us it is to persevere right to the very end, no matter what is thrown against us. It is to swim against the tide. It is to take the very opposite of the current view of tolerance. Now, in First Corinthians, Paul gives us a very practical illustration of this idea of long-suffering, of Christian endurance. He gives us a picture of a woman. that's. He talks about women and men, actually, but let's go with a woman for now. Because in Greek society, the position of a woman was a very lowly position indeed. She had no rights. So he pictures a woman, a Christian woman, married to an ungodly man. So I want you to turn with me, please, to First Corinthians 7 in your Bible. Do it just now. First Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 12. And we're going to read together this little bit of teaching from First Corinthians. So First Corinthians chapter 7 and reading from verse 12. Paul speaking here himself. To the rest I speak, I not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away and the woman which hath an husband which believeth not and if he be pleased to dwell with her let her not leave him for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband Else were your children unclean but now are they holy but if the unbelieving depart let him depart a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knoweth thy, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? That's, that's perseverance. That's long-suffering. This woman, think about her for a moment in this very difficult position, a woman with no rights in that society, a woman who's a Christian with an unbelieving husband, that woman would be ridiculed, that woman would be reviled, that woman would be mocked, she'd be ill-treated for her faith, And yet, Paul's advice to that woman is to endure all the insults and all the ridicule because, in her patient long suffering, the husband may see something of her in the character of Christ and be one for the Lord. That's the kind of long suffering we're to persevere. That's the long suffering that we're to practice as Christians. That's our disposition. No matter what insults this world throws against us, no matter what, how difficult our situation becomes, no matter what they may call us, no matter what they may do to us, we will be long-suffering. We will not stand down. We will not back down. We will not surrender. We will keep going. And we will keep going as long as this life lasts. For Jesus taught in Mark 13 and 13. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure to the end. The same shall be saved. Are you ready to stand? Against every wicked dart of Satan. In this godless age in which we live. Knowing that it will last right throughout your life because you are long-suffering, you're willing to endure in the hope that your long-suffering may bring others to Christ. And remember that when we do that, we are emulating our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who was long-suffering toward us. 2 Peter 3 and 9 The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's move on. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. The next word that we see here that describes the Christian living out and walking worthy of the vocation with which they have been called is the word love, agape. Sometimes I have to give a short address at a wedding. Not very often. But very often, if I would if I would be speaking at a wedding, I would like to read 1 Corinthians 13. And after I've read it and talked about how love is the only thing that lasts, I will say to the bride and groom, What kind of love lasts forever? Because on a wedding day, they will be overflowing with love, won't they? They should be. Their feelings will be running high. The excitement will be there and the joy and the love. But that kind of love, I will point out to them, that kind of love is the love that you feel. And that kind of love wavers. And that kind of love grows cold sometimes when the excitement dies and the wedding dress is put put away and the workaday problems return. The love that lasts forever is not just the love that you feel. It's the love that you do. Agape or agape love is a verb. It's something that you practice, like the love of Christ, who loved us even when we were unlovable. As Paul says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some might even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a good way to point a bride and groom to the cross. To remind them that none of us are perfect, that we are all sinners. That God loved us even when we are unlovable. And that sometimes husbands and wives may become a little unlovable. And that's when we're to love them all the more. That's real love. Christian love is not just an emotional feeling. It's something you practice. And it's something that's so strong that the believer will love and do good even to those that he doesn't like, even to our enemies. And that brings us to my final point. The last word that I want to look at is in verse 4, and it is peace. Or rather, verse 3, it is peace, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If we do love one another as Christian believers, then there will be a relationship between one another, won't there? Love the practice of true Christ-likeness towards others, friends and enemies alike, leads us to this obvious conclusion that we will live in unity and peace with other believers. Interestingly, Paul describes peace here as a bond. He talks about keeping the bond of peace. We are bound together in Christ, the bond that is practically maintained by cultivating all of these Christian attributes with the help of the Holy Spirit bearing fruit within us. Not thinking too highly of ourselves, remembering that we are dust, being meek and exercising long-suffering, patient endurance under provocation, practicing forgiving love for one another. Those are the basis for Christian fellowship. Maybe we should read those things at the start of every church business meeting. If we have those underlying qualities as all true believers should, then there should be peace in the church. And we should live in harmony with one another. If we're living in pride, if we're pursuing our own agendas as individuals, if we are impatient, if we are critical of each other, if we are unloving and unforgiving, then what hope have we of maintaining the unity that should mark the true church of attaining that oneness in Christ that Paul makes our goal and objective here in Ephesians. And unity in the church is not possible without the Holy Spirit. Here we have it again. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, Paul's not endorsing here some kind of syncretistic false ecumenism kind of a doctrineless, insipid form of Christianity that stands for nothing and falls for everything. Paul's idea here of Christian unity is the organic connection that pertains already between sinners who have been called by God, who have been saved by Christ's atoning work, who are being indwelt by the Holy Spirit between true believers. It's not denominational. It's not institutional. It's not defined by our form of worship or our views and secondary issues. What we call adiaphora, matters indifferent to faith. It is Christians agreeing on the fundamental basics, bowing to the Lordship of Christ, truly saved by God's grace, who love the Lord and his people, who are already bound together with this great bond, That is the true church. And those descriptions of Christian character are imperatives. Remember what we said about verse, the difference between chapter 1 and 3 and chapter 4 to 6. Chapters 1 to 3 is full of verbs that describe what God has done for us. The whole way through. This is what god has done god has chosen us god has elected us god has made us adopted us as sons right the whole way through everything all bar i think i said one verb is is about what god has done and that one verb is just simply a way to remember but here we're not talking about us becoming christians we're talking about our christian life And we are here to do something. Verse 3, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit. This is to be our endeavour. It is to be what we do. It is an exhortation. These are things that we have to work on, things that we have to develop in our own lives with the help of the Holy Spirit, making every effort. Matthew Henry said that endeavor is a gospel word. We must do our utmost. In other words, if somebody quarrels with us we must take all possible care not to quarrel with them. If others despise us and hate us, we must work at not despising and hating them. And that's going to be hard work. But that's how we're going to live in such a way. Uh, We will walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. We're going to cultivate humility and meekness and long-suffering and love and live in Christian communities that are characterized by the unity of peace. And maybe if we do that, maybe if I do it, maybe if I can ask the Lord to help me, then one day, Less Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.